Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let's open God's Word this morning to John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. Before we begin, we need to make sure that we are prepared to study God's Word, that we are in fellowship, operating under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and guide and helps us to understand the Word of God. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer so that we can utilize 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, private confession of sin to God the Father, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to look at your word today and for these tremendous truths that we learn from Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees in this particular episode, how important it is to understand the nature and source and means of our freedom in Christ. So we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to apply them to our life. In Christ's name, amen. We continue through this central section of the Gospel of John, which is a continuous series of confrontations between Jesus and the religious crowd in Jerusalem, exemplified by the Pharisees. Often they are referred to in the text as simply the Jews. This is not an anti-Semitic remark by the writer of the Gospel, because, of course, he is Jewish. And because, of course, almost everyone involved here is Jewish, but he uses that term because they are the leadership of Judea. They are the leadership of the nation, and it is their decision more than any other decision as the representatives of the nation which will determine the course of the nation in human history. And because the leadership in Israel rejected Christ's claims as Messiah, the nation was disciplined by God. Now, we have seen that John wrote this gospel for a specific purpose. He said, these are written. It's not simply these things or these episodes, but the context of John 20, 31 is these signs, these witnesses. These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. As Jesus taught In the treasury outside the temple in Jerusalem, he was confronted by the Pharisees. And as he continues his confrontation, continuing to explain his ministry, 
in verses 21 down through 31 last time, we saw our, down through 30, we saw that in verse 30 that the result is that as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Now the phrase that is used here in this particular verse is very important. It is the aorist active indicative of the verb pistuo. P-I-S-T-E-U-O. This is the main verb in the Greek language for faith. And it means to believe, to rely upon something, to trust something, to understand and uh, accept it as true. And when you accept something as true, that is the same as believing. The odd thing is that in much of Christianity, we, people try to make a distinction between what they call a head faith and a heart faith. And sometimes you'll find people who say, well, in fact, oftentimes, as I've studied this passage, you will find people say, well, there were some who believed, but they didn't really believe. It was just an academic belief. They just believed the facts but they didn't really trust Jesus. And I'm amazed at how many people, I'm talking about theologians, pastors I dialogue with on occasion, who haven't thought these issues through very well. Uh, I remember the first time I was confronted with, I read a little book called Faith and Saving Faith by a a very well-known theologian by the name of Gordon Clark. Now, there's some things that he says that I don't agree with, But he really makes an issue out of talking about definitions and terms. What does it truly mean to believe? And he analyzes historical uh, theological definitions. And he makes this point that if you accept something is true, what more is there? I mean, if you believe the facts about Jesus, isn't that enough? Because, frankly, in the 20th century, all we have is the facts about Jesus. I want you to catch that because some people say, well, you have to have a relationship with Jesus. But that's not what the Scripture says. In fact, Judas Iscariot had a relationship with Jesus and it didn't do him any good at all. He was not a believer and that's exemplified by a number of different passages in the Scripture which are very clear and which we'll get to in the process of going through our study of of John. Judas was not a believer. We've seen that already at the end of John chapter John chapter 6. He had a relationship with Jesus, but he wasn't a believer. He didn't accept the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And you see, that is all we have. We have certain propositions in the Scripture. These propositions state facts about Jesus, the fact of his virgin conception and birth. We have the fact of his sinlessness, the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. We have the fact that he was crucified and that while he was on the cross, God the Father imputed to him all the sins of human history. Every single sin ever committed by every individual was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. That He died spiritually 
During those three hours, he was separated from God the Father judicially, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he died physically on the cross when he committed his spirit to God the Father. Then he was buried, and he was in the grave for three days and three nights, and then he rose bodily from the grave. And First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 tells us that the essence of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that if you believe these things, then you have eternal life. Well, He had not died yet, but the message that He was proclaiming in the middle of His ministry during the time of His incarnation was that He was the Messiah. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And that means that they were saved. Phase one, salvation, justification. And so what you have here, as he stands in the temple precincts outside the treasury, is a large crowd of people. And this crowd of people are called the Jews. These are unbelievers throughout John, if you do a study of the term. He uses it to refer to the unbelieving leaders of the nation specifically. And then there is a subset there. And these are those in the group that come to believe in Jesus Christ and they are saved. So in verse 31, there is a shift. Jesus begins to address the Jews who have believed in Him. Verse 31 says, Therefore Jesus was speaking to those Jews who had believed Him. And what we have here for a verb is the perfect passive uh, participle of pistuo again. Now, in um, the previous verse, we had the aorist active indicative. Aorist active means it just summarizes up everything in one bullet, so to speak, and says that many came to believe in Him. And really, that's a bad translation. If you look at the Greek, it says, many believed in Him. It doesn't have the word came to at all. It just is a simple aorist active indicative, third person plural. The subject is many, poloi, the nominative masculine plural of palas, many believed, ace auton, believed in him. Now that phrase, pistuo, ace auton, the verb pistuo plus the preposition ace, E-I-S, plus the third person uh, personal pronoun, third person singular, auton, meaning him, it's in the accusative case, from Altos, is a standard stock phrase by the writer of the Gospel for expressing the condition for salvation. John 1.12, he says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Pistuo ace. John 2.11, The beginning... This beginning of His signs, referring to changing the water into wine, this beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Pistuo, ace, autan. 
John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, pistuo, apes, autan, believes in Him, should not perish, but have eternal life. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Pistuo ace again. And then John twenty thirty one. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Once again, it's Pistuo ace. And the reason I go over this again and again and again is because there is this assumption that is made by so many that somehow, because somebody departed from Jesus, that they believed at one point, and then they seemed to be antagonistic afterwards, that it was not saving faith. That simply accepting the facts about Jesus is not enough. There has to be something more. What that something more is, is never articulated. I keep looking for it. I ask the question when I hear that. I say, well, what else is there? And the only way you hear people go is they'll say, well, it wasn't true saving faith. And they say, in essence, they're saying that there are two kinds of faith. That you can have a faith in Jesus that isn't saving. And what that ends up doing is putting the merit for your salvation on the kind of faith that you have. You have to have the right kind of faith in Jesus. And how do you know that you have the right kind of faith? Well, you don't know. The, except by the evidence. By the fruit. If you have the right kind, then you'll have the right fruit. And the Scripture says, although it's talking about something else, they never seem to go there, by your fruits, by their fruits, you will know them. And so the assumption then is that the way you know if you have saving faith is because the fruit is there. Now, the problem with that is that the only way you know if you're saved is if you have the right kind of fruit. And so that makes everybody fruit inspectors. Because we have to find out, do we have the right kind of fruit? And then what about the people who are not believers, but who are very religious, who are very moral, who are engaged in all kinds of what the world calls spiritual activities? Are, are, that, that looks like the right kind of fruit, so, so they must be saved. And these people who are living out here with a licentious lifestyle and abusing grace, they must not be believers. But yet, those are the ones who have believed Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And the problem is, is faith meritorious or is the work of Christ on the cross meritorious? And see, faith is, gets you salvation because it is a means for by grace you have been saved through faith, not because of faith. It's very precise in the Greek. Through faith, you see, it is Christ whose work saves us. The merit is all in the object of faith, not in the act of believing itself. 
So these are true believers. And Jesus turns to them and He begins to address a message, a mini-message to them in order to communicate some spiritual life doctrine to these new believers. And in John 8.31 we read, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed the perfect active participle. The perfect, well the participle tells us that in order to understand the timing of the action, we have to look at the main verb. And the main verb here is lego, the aorist active of lego, Jesus said. Therefore, Jesus said, not, it can be translated was saying, but I think it's more precise. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him. So the action of pistuo precedes the action of Jesus speaking. So that tells us that it's the subject of verse 31 are the believers of verse 30. They had already believed in him, and because it is a perfect tense, the perfect tense emphasizes the present results of a past action. So they are currently believers because they had made a one-shot decision in the past, to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. So Jesus addresses the believers and He says, If you abide in My Word. If you abide in My Word is a third class condition in the Greek. Now in the Greek language you have four different ways to express conditional clauses. A conditional clause is an if-then clause. The if clause is called the protesis. The conclusion or the then clause is called the apotesis. And here he expresses a condition in the third class way, which means if, maybe yes, maybe no. It could go either way. There is a true decision here. Maybe you will, and maybe you will not fulfill the condition. And the condition is abiding. And Jesus is saying, if you fulfill the condition, then there will be certain necessary consequences. But of course, you may not. In other words, you can be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and choose not to fulfill the condition. That option is open to you. Of course, you will go through divine discipline for most of your life. You will never find happiness. You will be absolutely miserable. You will never glorify God. And when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, you will lose rewards. All you will have is wood, hay, and straw, and that will all burn up, and you will enter heaven, yet it's through fire, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So you have an option, and this addresses your volition. If you abide, this is the word minnow, very important word in John's writings, and we'll have a lot more to say about it as we go through the rest of the gospel. It means to abide, it means to remain, it means to persevere, it means to endure, it means to stick with something. Now most things in life that are worth anything, worth pursuing, involve a tremendous amount of perseverance, endurance, and abiding in them. For example, one of the biggest problems that people have in our society is weight. And they're constantly looking for quick fix, magic bullet solutions to the problem of their waistline. And so there's one fad diet one year and another fad diet two months later. 
and another fad diet a few months later, and then there are all sorts of various pills that you can take just to get that weight off. And people go on diets, and then after two or three days, something comes along, and there's a birthday cake, or there's a uh, dessert, or they, there's an opportunity to go down and get an ice cream cone, or or to eat chips and salsa, or whatever your pleasure might be. It always seems to present itself, and we wonder why these things don't work. Because we don't persevere. If it's going to have any value, it means you have to do it the same way, every day, day in, day out, over a long period of time. Same thing is true with exercise. You want to get in shape. You don't get in shape just by going out and jogging one day a week or one day a month. Or whenever you feel like it, oh, I think I'll get up and do a few sit-ups and a few push-ups. And somehow we assuage our guilt complex and we think that we're going to stay in shape. If you're going to stay in shape, you need to be out there doing whatever it is you're going to do for exercise four or five times a week on a consistent, habitual basis. The same thing is true for any activity in life. If you expect to reap the results from it, then you have to make it a part of your daily activity. That's what abiding means. It means to stay with it, making it a part of your life, and making it a priority to do this day in and day out. And Jesus is saying, if you are going to be truly disciples... More than just learners, the term disciple we'll address in a minute, but in this case he's talking about that upper echelon of his followers that were truly advancing to spiritual maturity, that that is a result of only one thing, and that is abiding in the Word. It says, if you abide, if you stay with my Word, and that is, here we find the word logos. Very important word that we're going to find out Throughout this, this particular passage, it is also a title for the Lord Jesus Christ, L-O-G-O-S. And there's a, John has an interplay here before the word logos and the word laleo, which means to speak. So this is, laleo will emphasize his spoken word, and logos is going to emphasize the doctrine communicated through his spoken word. So if you abide in the Lagos, in my Lagos, then you are truly disciples of mine. So he has shifted from talking about believers to talking about disciples. Now this is another area of confusion. A disciple is not necessarily a believer. Disciple in its root meaning just refers to a student. Someone who attached themselves to a teacher for a time, it may be a few weeks, it may be a few months or a few years, somebody who followed someone else's teaching. Now, it's also used in a more technical way in the New Testament to refer to those twelve who followed Jesus. They were called disciples. Now, some of them were not even believers. For example, Thomas, doubting Thomas. Thomas does not become a believer until after the resurrection. So all of this time he is an unbeliever, which always seems to confuse people. How is it that Jesus could send them out in Matthew 11? He sends out the twelve as apostles to Israel, and he delegates to them authority over illness, disease, 
and demons. It's a very simple solution. God is sovereign and He can do whatever He wants to do in order to achieve His purposes. In the same way that God used unrighteous, unsaved, Cyrus in the Old Testament. In fact, He called him my anointed one, Mashiach. You are my anointed one. Did Cyrus know that? Cyrus had no clue. Cyrus didn't even know God existed. Cyrus was an unbeliever. But God says, you are my anointed and I am going to use you to restore Israel to the land. There was a particular mission, and Cyrus led the Medes and the Persians to great victory over the Babylonians because God was going to use him for a particular purpose. So God can use unbelievers to achieve his purposes because he is God and he is sovereign. So you have uh, the... Thomas was not a believer until after the resurrection when he saw Jesus and he said, My Lord, my God. Judas was not another one who was not a believer until after uh, at all. He never became a believer, never trusted the Lord. In fact, Satan indwelt him. It's very clear in the text that Satan is the subject of the verb. And the verb there is is Eikamai, meaning that, that, Judas, that Satan is the performer of the action and he entered into Judas. So those were not uh, believers. So the term disciple does not necessarily mean a believer. But then there is the case like this when Jesus is talking about a higher level of disciple. It's not just a learner, which can apply to a believer or unbeliever. It's not simply one of the twelve, which incidentally became a technical title because even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared in the resurrection to the twelve. But by that time, Judas had already hanged himself. So we see that there were only eleven by that time, but they're still called by this just a technical title for the group. And they were not all believers. There were at least two that were unbelievers. And then it is used as a technical title for believers who who are advancing to spiritual maturity and who are serious about everything that Jesus teaches, and who are serious about mastering the spiritual life. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and there will be a result, verse 32, and you shall know the truth. So there is a relationship between abiding, or staying with it, and knowing the truth, which comes from the Greek verb for knowledge, gnosko. Gnosko does not refer to just intuitive sort of knowledge, but it refers to that process of coming to know something, to learn something as a result of study and discipline. So there is an emphasis here on concentration. There is an emphasis here on the process of learning. And Jesus is saying, you shall know something. And what is that? And that is the truth, the Greek word aletheia. Now, if you went to college anywhere, you probably had a building, usually a liberal arts building or library on campus, where you have this engraved. It's especially popular up here, places like Harvard and Yale, where you have this engraved over some building. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And people want to take the term aletheia just to refer to any kind of truth, small t. One plus one equals two. If you drop an apple and a 50-pound weight off the top of a building, they'll both hit the ground at the same time. 
little t, scientific truth. That's not what Jesus is talking about. We know that in context, but because he's used the word logos, referring to the word of God, and so here he is talking about truth in terms of Bible doctrine, all that is in all the thoughts, principles, uh, mandates, prohibitions that are expressed in the Word of God. You shall, through concentration, study, and discipline, come to know Bible doctrine, and it is Bible doctrine that will set you free. Now, this is the essence of the power of Scripture, is because it is truth. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, not because it has some mystical inner essence of power, but because it is truth. It expresses reality from God's viewpoint. And by living in reality on the basis of divine viewpoint, that is where we have freedom. But what kind of freedom are we talking about? There's all kinds of freedom. There's political freedom. There's social freedom. There's moral freedom. Economic freedom. And spiritual freedom. What kind of freedom is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about spiritual freedom. And this becomes clear from His answer or His explanation in verse 34. That it is doctrine that will make you free. And then verse 33, remember as I said, He's talking to the crowd, this whole multitude. Some are saved. He changes His attention. He starts focusing on the few who have trusted Him to give them instruction for the spiritual life. And the religious crowd, remember, the natural man, the unsaved man, the soulish man, 1 Corinthians 2.12, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are not discernible to him. Now, this is going to be clear from the way the Pharisees act in the rest of this chapter. They don't have a clue as to what Jesus is really talking about, so they just jump in and interrupt him out of their arrogance. Now, it's a lot of confusion, and you read various exegetes and hear various people, and they say, look, it says, they answered him. The nearest reference to the they is the disciples, those whom Jesus is addressing as believers. And in most scenarios, that would be true. But you have to judge the context. And it is very clear, especially by verse 41, that he is not talking to believers. Now, the problem here is that if they're not believers by verse 41, and if the they is referring to those who believed in Him, this is how they reason, then therefore it's a false belief. That's how they get there. It's convoluted. If pistuo ace refers ever to an unbeliever, then we have a real problem trying to define what it is you have to do in order to be saved. And I just want to get that across. That is... A fundamental issue. Language must mean something. And the trouble with today is we live in an era when language can be, people think language can be shaped and molded to mean whatever they want it to mean at the moment. We have debates about what does is mean. That is postmodern. So, it's sort of like a postmodern hermeneutic. Pistuoase means one thing here and it means something else there. It has to always mean the same thing. It is John's technical term for how we are saved. So they, this is the 
religious Jews in the crowd that aren't believers say, we're Abraham's offspring. The emphasis that they have is that it is their racial heritage because they are genetically linked to Abraham. They think they're automatically going into heaven. Back in John chapter 1, we're told in the introduction that Jesus came to His own, that is, the genetic relatives, the Jews, came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him, this is the small group, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born, what? Not of blood, not of physical relationship to Abraham, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is a spiritual birth, not a physical birth that is the issue. And the religious Jews just don't get the point. They said, we're Abraham's offspring. And then their arrogance and the blindness of their arrogance. And we have never yet, never yet. What about the Babylonian captivity when you were taken out to Babylon for 70 years? Never yet been enslaved to anyone. What about further back when you spent 400 plus years in slavery in Egypt? We have never yet been enslaved to anyone. They totally missed the point that at that very moment in history, the province of Judea was a province of SPQR, Senatus Populusque Romanus, which was the title for the Roman Empire, the Senate and the populace of Rome, the Senate and the people of Rome. They were enslaved to Rome politically. They were enslaved to the Mosaic Law, according to what Paul says in Galatians. And furthermore, they are enslaved to their own religious traditions. Furthermore, because of their religious traditions, they have a very rigid social hierarchy, and they're enslaved socially to the hierarchy of their religious traditions. They're enslaved in many different ways, and I've enumerated about four of them. And then Jesus says there is a fifth way. Verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who poieo commits, practices sin, is the slave of sin. This is a gnomic principle and will be reiterated by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. If you exercise your volition negatively and you choose to sin, and of course the unbeliever has no other option but the sin nature, then you are the slave to sin and you are enslaved to sin. And so Jesus says to them, you are right now a slave to sin. He ignores the other categories which are blatant and focuses on the real issue which is the spiritual issue. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So Jesus is going to now answer their question. He defines the term there that the kind of slavery he's talking about is spiritual slavery and slavery to sin. And then he gives an illustration in verse 35. He says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So let's draw a picture here on the overhead so that we can understand the analogy. We'll put a rooftop here, two walls here, and inside the house there's a slave, a son, and of course for there to be a son, there must be a father. 
Now, in the context, they are emphasizing their physical relationship to Abraham. So we will identify the father here as Abraham. But Jesus is saying, you're not a son, you are a slave, because the issue is not physical relationship, but spiritual relationship. So you're a slave. So the Jews are over here as a slave. Now hold your place here, and let's correlate this to how the Apostle Paul develops this thinking in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul uses the historical event as an allegory. Now, I make this point because sometimes somebody goes to this passage and they say, see, you can allegorize Scripture. Allegory rejects historicity. Paul uses a historical episode. He never rejects its historicity as an analogy to draw a spiritual point. Verse 21, Tell me, you who want to be under law, the Pharisees were under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. So here we have Abraham, and he has two sons, one by the bondwoman, Hagar, and one by the free woman, his wife, Sarah. Fits perfectly, doesn't it? But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman was by the promise. So we have flesh versus promise. This is the, allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one bearing, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, You who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. So, here we have Ishmael on one side, Isaac on the other, the child of promise. What made him a child of promise? What made him a child of promise was that Isaac was regenerated. He trusted in the promise of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, you were not saved by the law. Remember, the law does not come into effect until approximately 1440 A.D., B.C. And the events surrounding Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob were some 400 years before that. They are saved by believing the promise that God would provide a Savior. It anticipates the coming of the Savior. Isaac is regenerated. Ishmael is an unbeliever. So the story from the Old Testament emphasizes faith alone and Christ alone, as exemplified in the Old Testament promise. And what Jesus is saying back in John chapter 8 is the issue is not physical relationship. Physical relationship didn't do Ishmael any good. Ishmael was a physical descendant of Abraham. Abraham was his father. But Ishmael is an unbeliever and he's going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. The issue is spiritual relationship following the example of Abraham. That's the background to understand this whole interchange. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Ishmael did not remain in the house when he died. 
he is ejected because he's going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. The son does remain forever. The son Isaac remains forever because of faith alone in Christ alone. And then he gives an invitation. You would almost think Jesus was a Baptist at this point. Wants to make sure they understand the issue of salvation. He says, If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He offers salvation to the Pharisees right there. Do you want to be saved? If you do, the Son can make you free. Freedom does not reside in a political situation. Freedom resides in your relationship to Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then in verse 37 he says, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And again, we have the word logos. My word. Doctrine has no place in you. Again, he is emphasizing their negative volition and their rejection of truth. Verse 38, I speak. And here we see the contrast between speaking laleo, and which is his physical act of speech, versus the doctrinal content of the logos. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Here he contrasts his father with their father. Jesus is really turning the heat up here. He is not out to win friends, to stroke their their, uh, and soothe their hurt feelings, and to stroke their ruffled feathers. Jesus is getting ready to ruffle their feathers. And He says, I speak the things which I have seen with the Father. There's no my in the original, but there is a definite article that I have seen with the Father. Now you've fit this in context with what he said back in John 6 in that lengthy discourse, or John 5, John 6, and then earlier in this passage, John 8:18, I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness also. And when they asked him, where is your Father? He said, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father. And throughout here, he makes the claims that he is the one who is from the Father, has been sent from the Father, and speaks what the Father told him to speak. Says, what I, I, I speak the things which I have seen with the Father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from the, your Father. So here we have a contrast that Jesus is drawing. He is related to the Father, and they, the Jews, are related to their Father. Now, who is their father? Now, once again, they're thinking physically, and they reiterate the previous claim. Verse 39, Abraham is our father. But you see, Jesus is not going to grant their assumption. He continues to challenge their presupposition. Abraham is not their father. He completely rejects that, and he's trying to demonstrate to them the fallacy of their assumptions. If you are Abraham's children. Verse 39. And he uses a first-class condition indicating that it is a debater's first-class condition if, and for the sake of argument, we will assume that you are children, techna, of Abraham. On that assumption, then there should be certain results. If the results are there, we'll grant the assumption. What we'll see is the results aren't there. If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. 
But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. Contrast. You're not doing what Abraham did. Abraham rejoiced to see me. You want to kill me. Your attitude is 180 degrees apart from Abraham's. Therefore, how can you claim to be Abraham's seed? That's the argument. Verse 40, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. Notice the emphasis here. My word, the truth. I'm speaking to you the truth. Over and over again, he's hitting them between the eyes with doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Do you accept the truth? Do you accept doctrine or not? A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. That's my source of authority. What's your source of authority? Abraham did not do this. Verse 41, he says, and challenges them again, but you are doing the deeds of your father. And they reject that and they say, we were not born of fornication, that is, we're not born of immorality, we're true Jews. That's what they're arguing. We're true Jews. We have one father, even God. Okay, now they're going to shift their argument. Our father's not Abraham, we'll grant that. Our father is God. We're going to engage a little one-upmanship. You're going to claim that God's your father? We will too. Now, how are you going to handle this? How are you going to prove that God is not our Father? So then Jesus turns to them, and it does come across in the English as clearly as it does in the Greek. Because Jesus uses a second-class condition here in verse 42. It's a second-class condition. First-class condition, if, and we'll assume that this is true. We've seen a couple of examples of that already. We've seen a third-class condition. If, maybe it will be, maybe you'll choose to do this, maybe you won't choose to do this. But this is a second class condition, if, and you're not. If, and it's contrary to fact. If, and we'll assume it's not true. If God were your father and he's not, that's what Jesus is saying by this. If God were your father and he's not, you would love me. See, there's no evidence that you... you Indicates you're not. You, there's no spiritual life there. You don't love me. You have. You do not respond to me positively. It says, if God were your father and he's not, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. He continually presses the point that his origin is God the Father. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You see, 1 Corinthians 2.12 says that the sukikos man, P-S-U-C-H-I-K-O-S, that refers to a soulish man. Man was originally created with a human body, soul, and a human spirit. When Adam sinned, he lost the human spirit. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we regain the human spirit. But when you're born, you only have a body and a soul. And the human spirit is that immaterial part of man that allows you to have a relationship with God. So that without a human spirit, you can't understand the things of God. And the word sukikos is translated in most Bibles as a natural man. 
and it should be, should be translated, a soulish man cannot understand the things of God. They, you do not have the capacity to, and that's what Jesus is emphasizing here. You cannot hear my word because you are not saved. You are of your father the devil. I'll never forget the first time I taught this as a pastor, half the church erupted. They had bought the liberal lie. One of the key principles of modern Protestant liberalism is the universal fatherhood of God. God is everyone's father. But John 1.12 says that as many as received him, them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. From the moment you're born until the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, your father is the devil. You didn't realize that, did you? But that's true for every single human being. They are of their father the devil because you can only operate on your sin nature and your sin nature leads you to follow in the path of Satan in trying to assert your own independence from God. So Jesus just slaps the religious crowd right between the eyes. You think you're following God. You're so good. You're so religious. But you're following the devil. What a reaction. You're of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. There's no doctrine in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, out from his own. Nature's not in the original, but it's implied there from his own being, his own character, who and what he is. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So he is calling them liars. He is calling them demonic. He is calling them of their father, the devil. And then he says, but because I speak the truth. Interesting. Pay attention to verse 45. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. The reason he is saying that you don't believe me is because I speak the truth. They're rejecting him. And because they reject him and his claims to Messiah, they're rejecting everything that he says. Verse 46. Therefore, which one of you convicts me of sin? And Jesus is saying, you know me, you've watched me. I've been under your scrutiny now for three years. You know that you can bring no charge against me. Not like the woman taken in adultery, which we just dealt with a little earlier that morning, that you convicted her of sin because you laid a trap and you were watching her. But now you've been watching me. You can't find anything to bring a legitimate charge in order to bring a legitimate charge against me. I am sinless. Go ahead. Which one of you is going to convict me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And he is going, he's forcing the issue down to the fact that it is not the content. It is their volition. They have rejected God at God consciousness. Just because someone is religious and religiously active does not mean they are positive. Romans 1, if we were to go back there again this morning and look at 1.18 through 20, man has all the evidence of God's existence before him in the creation and he continually suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. 
A few verses later it says that man professing to be wise becomes a fool. Why? Worshipping the creature rather than the creator. So what happens is in religion you reject the creator and you erect in its place a human viewpoint religious system. So in effect you are worshipping the product of the creature and no longer the creator. You have no concept of grace. In verse 47, Jesus said, He who is of God, that is, a person who is a believer, who has a human spirit, can understand the words, the logos of God, the doctrine of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. He is trying to convict them of the fact that they are unbelievers and that there is no hope for them just because they're tied physically to Abraham. That is not the basis for salvation. And Jesus is trying to communicate the Gospel to them. We've seen the invitation already. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. The offer is on the table to the Pharisees. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept Me and you will be free. But the reason you don't is because you are negative. You've already rejected the Gospel offer. You've rejected God consciousness. And your orientation is completely to your own human viewpoint system of religion. And then verse 48. Jesus has said, They are of their father the devil. And I get the picture here that this is sort of like an adolescent. Well, you're going to say we're from the devil. You're the devil too. They can't handle his argument. Jesus' arguments are so sophisticated and so well thought through and so well articulated that they're, they're left without a leg to stand on. So all they can say is, you have a demon too. You're saying we have a demon. Well, you have a demon. And the confrontation deteriorates from there into one of the most profound statements that Jesus makes at the end of the chapter. And we'll come back and look at that next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for Your Word and how clear it is and for the clear evidence that's in Your Word that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be. That He is Your Son. He is undiminished deity united in true humanity. And He is the one who was thus qualified to go, on the, go to the cross and there to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And that salvation is not based on who and what we are. It's not based on our physical relationships to anyone. It is not based on race. It is not based on good works. It's not based on church membership. It's based exclusively on whether or not we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. For He performed all of the work for us on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their salvation, that this would be clear to them and that they would take the opportunity right now to secure their eternal destiny. All they need to do is pray silently to You. Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and I accept His free gift of salvation. Now, Father, you pray that You you would help us remember the things that we have studied to apply them to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.